So we're in our series, The Marvels of Biblical Joy, and I've titled this message, God Has Reasons for People Suffering. God Has Reasons for People Suffering. And we're going to be in Romans chapter 5, so I uh, invite you to take your Bibles and turn there. And um, I am going to be uh, doing a couple of, I think, important things as, as I was praying through this and thinking through the text. Um, and I want to begin with a quick illustration, uh, hopefully, that will connect with you. Um, C.S. Lewis, uh, in his book, uh, The Problem of Pain, addresses a, a group of people that we most likely all have encountered at some point. This group of people are atheists. And he's trying to, to basically paint this picture of how atheists tend to think of suffering. And he points out the problem with their thinking. So he, this is what he says. An atheist would think or say, potentially in their argument, if God were good, he would wish to make his creatures happy. You, you hear that? It's all about us. And we, we see this in our day, especially uh, in contemporary thought, that it's about my happiness, my joy, my pleasure. If God were really good, he would make me enjoy things, okay? Uh, Lewis continues, and if God were almighty, he would be able to do what he wished, but his creatures are not happy. Therefore, God lacks either goodness or power or both. That, that's a, a typical view that, that an atheist would have about pain and suffering. And, and um, not that this is Lewis's thoughts exactly, but I, I summarize this. That, uh, that objection to God's goodness and, and, uh, is basically insulting in its simplicity. It assumes that our lack of suffering is an ultimate good. D do you get that? By assuming that our lack of suffering is an ultimate good, that perspective misapplies and misunderstands what, who, and, who and what God is, how He works uh, drastically, okay? And let me, let me it's, it over, it basically it looks at the benevolence of God in a way that is short. It falls short of understanding really who God is. The Christian, us, we know that there is much more to the problem of suffering and pain than what the atheist would tend to say. So that, reading that, that statement and thinking through that, it made me stop and think about this question. Why do we suffer? Why does God, even more important, why does God allow suffering or what are his purposes or reasons for our suffering? So let's read the text and then I'm going to jump into some initial thoughts and then we're going to unpack the text, okay? So Romans 5, we're going to read verses 1 through 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, and let me stop there for just a moment um, because I think we need to edit, I, I need to editorialize this and us think through this for just a minute. What we sang this morning in worship, what Rob focused in on during uh, the communion time is this idea of justification, that we cannot in and of ourselves by any measure or means of our own make ourselves right before God. There is no righteousness within me. There's no righteousness within you where God would look at us and say, well done, good and faithful servant. It is, I love this line, I wrote it down as we were singing it again, nothing but the blood, it's, it, that's that line, nothing for our sin, or, or nothing for sin can atone. Is it, did I get it right? 
Nothing can for sin atone. I'll get it right. Nothing can for sin atone. What? What's the response? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. When we talk about justification, when Paul writes this and we built our doctrine off the scripture of what Paul means here under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, it means this. We cannot pay the penalty for our sin. We cannot be righteous on our own. But when we look at the work of Christ, we are justified. Then that, and that what that does for us is it puts us in a legally right standing before God. Not because of us, but because of Christ's work. And so if we have not, by faith, responded and trusted in the work of Christ, that means we're truly not a Christian. And, and I know that's a very uh, like abrupt kind of confrontational statement, but, but that's the truth. We have to respond by faith to the work of Christ, to trust His work instead of our own. And so that's the foundation of what Paul is saying for what comes, okay? So we've already been wrapped up in all of those thoughts this morning. It's good stuff. So let's go back to Romans 5.1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, we have also obtained access by faith into the, this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So let me ask that question again. Why does God allow His people to suffer? Well, I think uh, as I thought about that, there's four reasons that I want to give, okay? So if you're taking notes, I would encourage you just to, to maybe write these four things down, and then I'm going to unpack a little bit more of the text. But I think these are important for us to understand as we answer that kind of question. So the first reason that God allows suffering is because it, He desires uh, his, his children to be corrected. Does, does that make sense? Let me read a couple of Proverbs to you. To, it'll help. Um, Proverbs 3, 11, and 12. If you're taking notes, especially just write this down. I'm not going to take time for us to turn to these passages. Proverbs 3, 11, and 12. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof, for the Lord reproves whom he loves. As a father, the son in whom he delights. Because the Father loves us, He corrects us. When we're doing wrong, He disciplines and reproves the actions so that we have these boundaries that reshape us and realign us into His will. So first is correction. Let me read another passage, Hebrews 12, 5 and 6. And I'll repeat that, Hebrews 12, 5 and 6. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. So you get this quote of that passage in Proverbs, almost verbatim. And, and so the, the New, Old Testament and the New Testament both indicate that the Lord, when he loves us, he corrects us. Now, I'm going to go out on a little bit of a limb here, and I, I trust that this is the Lord's word, and you'll... Uh, hopefully, if this is confrontational, you'll bear with me and uh, consider where you are. Uh, I started thinking about this idea uh, and I, of, of illustrating this idea of the Lord correcting uh, those He loves. 
And I immediately went to the idea of parenting because in this, these texts, it talks about the father loving his son. So you get this familial relationship there, the parent and the, the child. And I started thinking about the, the aspect of parenting that most of us in here have experienced at some level. Now, students and children in here, um, I, I want to encourage you with this because if you're like me, you hated when you did something wrong and you were going to get caught and there was discipline to come. Am I right in that? Y'all are looking at me like, we never do anything right, wrong, Matt. Don't lie. This is church, okay? We've all done something wrong, okay? Now, here's the, the point, though. I think that the Lord has put a natural instinct. If you, if you, I don't like that term necessarily, but there, there's something about the way he's wired us as parents that we, ought, we know that there's a responsibility to discipline our children, okay? Now, I'm going to get into some things here that may be a little confrontational, but I'm going to say them anyhow because I think I've got a good founding on, on the basis of the Lord. I think our secular culture has robbed us from biblical discipline, okay? And I, I'm going to tell you how I think they've done it. I think that they've looked at the idea of spanking and they have misapplied uh, the interpretation of biblical truth there. And it's influenced parents today so that parents do not want to spank their children. And I think that that's a tragedy. Now, let me say this. It's not my thoughts, it's the Lord's thoughts. Because let's go run through some scripture. Listen to Proverbs 12, 22, 15. Folly, and I'll repeat these if you're taking notes. Proverbs 22, 15. Proverbs 22, 15. Folly is bound up in the heart of a child. But the rod of discipline drives it far from him. The Lord says, use a rod. Second verse, Proverbs 23, 13. In Proverbs 23, 13, it says, do not withhold discipline from a child. If you strike him with a rod, he will not die. Wait a second, the Lord even has a little bit of sarcasm in his sense of humor, okay? You strike a child, he will not die, okay? Now, that's not what the world will say, they're going to say that you've scarred them emotionally for the entirety of their lives. That is not the truth. Let me keep going. If you strike him, and this is verse 14 as well, Proverbs 23, 13, and 14. If you strike him with a rod, you will save his soul from Sheol. You will save his soul. Not only will he not die, but you will save his soul. There's a reward to discipline, okay? Proverbs 26, 3. Listen to this one, Proverbs 26, 3. A whip for the horse, you don't whip a child, okay, with a, a whip, okay, a bridle for the donkey, and a rod for the back of fools. All of us have been foolish at some time. And remember, we go back, folly is bound up in the heart of a child is what we learned from the first proverb. So at some point, children are always foolish. Now, let me say this too, don't spank for foolish behavior, spank for disobedience and rebellion. There's a difference between spilling something accidentally and then intentionally, mom told me no and I'm going to do it, <laughs> right? Or dad told me no and I bumped dad's thoughts, I'm going to do what I, I well please. That's not thought folly, that's rebellion, okay? Listen to the last verse, Proverbs 29, 15. The rod and reproof give wisdom. But a child left to himself brings shame to his mother. 
hey, say it. Amen. Moms, y'all ought to be saying amen to that. Because when you think about when you've been out in public and your child has rebelled and they're screaming and they're fussing, what's it do? It embarrasses the snot out of you. Huh? It does. I've been there. And that's, you feel like, oh gosh, I can't do anything in public anymore. I'm ashamed to take my kids out. I'm ashamed for them to misbehave. We feel that. But God has told us that when we apply a rod of discipline, it provides wisdom so we don't face that shame. Because how our children go, it does impact us. And it's not just about a pride issue. Please don't hear that. This is about them gaining wisdom for the rest of their life. So I want to give you some practical in, uh, instructions about spanking, corrective discipline, okay? And I think this will help us understand also how the Lord applies these things in our lives. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you this, uh, and I didn't ask Katie's permission because this is fact, okay? Um, but when we were raising our children, we spanked our children with a wooden spoon, okay? That was the object of our choice. Um, why are you laughing, Rain? <laughs> Can you envision Juliana getting spanked with a wooden spoon? Yeah, it's a good thing Juliana's not here. What's, what's that? Oh, she, she remembers those things too? Yeah. So let me, let me give you some, some instructions about this, okay? Because if we're going to use a rod, what's the appropriate rod? We felt like that was an appropriate rod. Here's why. It was stiff enough to give a sting and make sure that there was pain for this little behind that needed correcting. But it was also something that we could measure well enough not to overextend a harsh beating, okay? And because of that, the other thing that we did, and this may sound silly, but we wanted to make sure that we didn't overextend, we always tested on ourselves first. So I can handle the pain. I know how much I'm about to give, which also brings it back to this point. When you're spanking, I would take that rod and make sure that because you've measured it, you also don't do it in anger. So what we would do is we would, as best as we could, not try to react in the moment. Now, I'm not going to say that we always were perfect in this, okay? We, we, we're human. We're going to fail and struggle. But we learned as we progressed, okay, and, and, and matured. And one of the things that we would do is we would pause and say, you're going to get a spanking, and we would give them time, especially as they got a little bit older, to process what that meant, okay? And then we'd go and tell them that this is why, this is your, your uh, discipline to correct you into obedience, and then we would have them bend over the bed or our knee, and we would spank them with the spoon. Why did we not use a, our hand in particular? <laughs> That's a really good practical reason right there. Yeah, but also we want after the spanking for them to come to our hand, even though it was this, the hand we wanted to be a, a reflection of our love and compassion and care and concern for them. That that was us touching them physically to embrace them warmly. So we would also emphasize that this was done with the intention of love. Now, so th those are three principles. With a, a, a rod, uh, weighing it, not in anger, not with our hands. And then the, the fourth principle was, would be this, um, that we would only do this when they were younger. So up, so what would happen is when they started toddling around, because that's really when you're having to say, no, don't, don't, don't go touch the light socket, don't get into the cabinet, don't you know, eat the dog food, don't, you know, don't do those things. No, 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 no. That's when spanking started. 
And as they grew and matured and began to understand and reason with us, the spankings declined and other forms of corrective discipline took place. So I remember with each child, we have three child, our children, um, each, each one we had like a little bit different stage because of their strong will or, or ability to um, understand mom and dad's heart. So I remember, you know, probably Christian was 12 or 13. Um, there was a strong-willed moment and he got a spanking. I remember that was the last one. It, it, honestly, it's because we were at no other, no other course of action was working. We said, you just need to experience physical pain again. And that was, there was the last one. That was probably one in three years, though, because there was no other recourse. With the girls, it was a little different. I don't remember probably spanking Juliana past nine. She's just the golden child. <laughs> she's not here to hear that. <laughs> um, she, she's, she constantly asks, you know, or says, Dad, I know I'm your favorite. I'm like, no, you're, you're my third favorite, yeah. Um, it's because you're my third born. I'm your first, my first favorite third. Um, anyhow, so as they grow, as your children grow with the ability to reason, spankings ought to diminish and you ought to be able to do other things to, to encourage them to corrective discipline, okay? So those are things that I think, I mean, if we look, they're biblical. It's not Matt's word that says this. This is God's word. And parents, I want to encourage you. If you're struggling with those things, because I know we got a lot of young parents in here, newborn, <laughs> back in the room. I'm sure you're like, this child will never do anything wrong. <laughs> um, you will find out fast. <laughs> Folks, if, if we want the Lord's corrective discipline in our children's lives, we need to practice biblical discipline. Because when our children align rightly to God's Word and His plans, which is our responsibility to instill in them, it honors the Lord. And that's the goal for our kids. So I'm not saying spank eternally. I'm not saying spank ruthlessly. I'm sp saying do that in a measured fashion according to good wisdom. And I would say this as well. Do it as a couple to together. Be unified in your decisions about how to do that. And if you feel uncomfortable in the moment, weigh that with your spouse. This may be one because I'm so mad I can't do it well enough right now. You need to handle this and share that load. Don't make it dad's responsibility, mom, to come home and do that. that that's how I grew up. And, and it, was, it was unfair to my dad. And it wasn't healthy for us as boys, okay? And, and so don't leave it up to the mom because she's there, dad's. Come, come in and find out what's going on. You may need to echo something, and you step in and help her, okay? Now, that's corrective. We see that not just for children, but that's a reminder to us of God's own love. And so when we experience, and I'm not talking necessarily about the, the pain of spanking in a physical sense, but the pain of suffering and trials that do bring physical difficulties to us, there's a, a point that we need to be tuning in with our Father and asking the question, am I in sin? Do I need a correction? I, I need to, to consider, is my heart in rebellion? Because these things that I'm struggling with may be designed to draw me back into line with, with the Heavenly Father and His plans for my life. So second, second, suffering is also formative. It's not just corrective, it's formative. I, I, this is a simple statement, but I think it is very prof profound. Maturation, our maturation 
is not happenstance. It, 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 does that make sense? When, when we're going to mature, it, it's not just because we go, hey, I'm just going to flit through life and everything's going to be better. We, I, I was sharing with Danny Taylor this week. He was like, Matt, I, I'm, I'm struggling like, in, to read and, and stay engaged in the reading. And I was like, Danny, that's discipline. It, it takes maturation. It takes reading a little bit faster than what you're doing, forcing yourself to do that so your mind doesn't drift out of the text that you're reading. And so we spent about 10 minutes talking about habits that he could do to help him in that because he's wanting to read more and not go back and reread because his mind's drifted. That's maturation for him. How many other areas of our lives do we need maturation in? And it doesn't just happen because we, you know, just do things. It's about discipline. It's about us making sure that we form a plan and, and in this sense, what I'm talking about is that God will also often use correction in our lives or suffering to put us in a plan where He forms us in that direction for maturation. Because sometimes the best lessons learned are those that are hardest. Am I the only one that, that deals with that? Okay, I see some, yeah. So the formative lessons are those for our maturation. They, they shape us. This image is, I think, so important. The Lord is described in Isaiah 64 as the potter. And what are we? We are the clay. I've, um, Debbie, I'm so jealous. Katie told me, y'all went to lunch a couple of days ago, and um, she told me that you've been given a pottery wheel by your son. And I, I, told, I think she told you that we've watched this show, The Great, uh, what is it, The Great Pottery Throwdown. Okay, so I've not thrown clay on a, a potter's wheel. That's like a dream that I want to do. I, I like some of the artsy stuff. But when you do that, the first thing you do is you get your ball of clay and you slam it onto the wheel. Why? It's weird, right? But, but it's got to stick. And then what you do is you take it and you kind of shape, shape it in this obelisk kind of thing. It's tall. And then you mash it back down to get the air and stuff out of the clay. That's, there's another process before that that you need the clay to get all the air out of it. What's the point of that? The discipline of getting a pot or a vase or a cup formed with the, the spinning potter's wheel and doing all that stuff begins with pressure. If you don't have the pressure first in the formative shape of things, then what happens is you get air in the clay and it busts open in the kiln. It literally explodes. Y'all didn't know I was so smart, did you? I don't know lots of stuff. I'm kidding. I'm so stupid. So the, the, the truth is, though, we have these pressure moments given to us by the Lord to form us because He is the potter, we are the clay. And He wants to form us into the image of Christ but often it is through suffering. The third part of why would God use suffering is this. It's part of the warfare of the world that we live in. This is part of the warfare of the world that we live in. Quick illustration, think about the life of Job. Here we have this cosmic enemy, Satan, who may have the opportunity to go before the Lord in your life. And I don't think it's like what happened with Job. I personally don't think I'm a big enough fish in the, the pool for uh, Satan to be looking for me. Now, he might have some demonic activity, you know, little lesser guys running around for me, but the, the truth is there's still spiritual warfare. And 
because this is His world physically right now. He's the prince of this world. He's not the Lord of it, but He has a temporary reign. He does have the freedom to go in and create suffering. So we need to remember that we're part of a cosmic warfare, spiritual warfare that rages all the time around us. And if we succumb to that without remembering that we have an enemy who prowls around like a a lion seeking whom he may devour, we would be foolish to forget that. We we must remember that to, to stand firm in the midst of the spiritual warfare. And all that's bound up in Ephesians 6. Go back and read Ephesians 6. It talks about the spiritual armor, the, the, the weapons of our warfare. But ultimately, we put all these weapons on, and we don't you know, go against the gates of hell. We stand. And having done all that we can, we stand firm. That's all we're required to do. Protect it that the enemy cannot attack us. And you think about what Job ultimately learned in his spiritual warfare in that that scene. He learned that God is faithful, that God is trustworthy, that that God certainly allowed all these things, but ultimately God is sovereign in control. And I think my tendency is to to enter, enter into spiritual warfare, and I go, oh, this is too hard, and I start to whine, and I lose sight of God's provision in my life. I take my eyes off of Him. And that's where I think the Lord is trying to help me mature to go, always look to me first. That's part of the key, is look to the sovereign God who is at work in all of these things because suffering is for purpose. The fourth reason that I think the Lord allows suffering or our struggles is ultimately it glorifies God. Our suffering glorifies God. You say, how do you know that? Well, do you remember in John chapter 9, um, Jesus has this encounter with a blind man. And in this encounter with the blind man, the disciples and, and witnesses around were asking, who sinned? Was it this man or was it his parents that sinned? And Jesus said what? He said, no one sinned. That this, this occurred that I might be glorified. Jesus' performance of the miracle and the healing of the blind man was simply for the glory of Jesus, which is ultimately the glory of God. There's just things that we're going to endure in this life that ultimately allow us to understand God is a mighty God, and this is for His glory. It may just be the the fact that we've endured the suffering and seen His goodness through it all, that we go, that's to God's glory. And, And if I'm being really, like, trying to bring this home in a sense, because we're talking about, crazy enough, the marvels of biblical joy and our suffering, okay? And here, I didn't know about Keith uh, Vickery before this morning. I found that out at 8.45 this morning, maybe a little bit before that. Um, how, how do we understand that? Because in a sense, we're sad as a church. We're sad for Vicky. They're suffering, But in all these things, has God changed His goodness? Has God changed any of His purpose? Has God's character or nature changed in any way because of these circumstances in her life? The answer to that is no. And so I quickly go, and and this is, if you're in Romans 5, I want you to turn with me here. And I'm probably going to bring this up again. But Romans 8, turn over just a couple pages to Romans 8. Most of us will be really familiar with this, but I think this is an important place for us to be reminded of this truth. Romans 8, we'll pick up in verse, um, let me see here. Let's pick up in verse 26 just to give a little context because I think this is important to understand again how we endure suffering, 
how we endure trials is because the Spirit of God is in us, because we're sealed until the day of redemption, according to Ephesians 1.13. The Holy Spirit is the comforter, okay, who, who indwells us. What a great position for us to remember that we're in who we are, how we are uh, engrafted by the Holy Spirit in the, into the vine of Jesus, okay? Now, let's read. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts know what is, knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for his, the saints according to the will of God. So the Spirit is constant. When we're suffering, when we're in struggles, the Spirit intercedes for us. He gives us comfort. He's at work all of the time. Now listen to what we understand now. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for the good. For those who are called according to His purpose. For those, and we'll, let's just stop right there. So, so when we think about struggles and suffering and trials, what we need to recognize is all those circumstances are being orchestrated by God for our good. So His character has not changed, His nature has not changed, His purpose has not changed, His will has not changed, and all of those things are directed for our good. And it may not just be a temporal good, and we're going to look at that in a moment, because the world looks for God's goodness in what fashion? A temporal fashion only. They can't understand the eternal aspect. But for us as believers, we see an eternal aspect. So now, having asked all these questions, let's go back and we're going to break down Romans 5 really quickly, okay? And this is going to be really quickly. So let's look at, uh, again, verse Let's pick up in verse 3. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings. So, so having hopefully shaped all of those earlier principles, asking what God's purpose is, we go, now we're seeing, we can dial in, so to speak, on how we can rejoice in suffering because we know God's always at work, because we know who He is. Now, what He, he continues to say, and this is where it gets really interesting to me, Knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. So, I think the first thing that we need to understand, and I'm going to go back to verse 1, just reference it really quickly, what I began the message with, is the, the point of joy begins with our justification in Christ. We, and by that I mean this, we simply cannot understand true biblical joy if we are not a believer. And that's obvious in one sense. But folks, it need, we need to go back to this and recognize that in and of ourselves, our joy can't rest properly. It has to rest in who we are in Christ. So it's constantly going back, and we've mentioned this again and again in this series so far, but joy is wrapped up in our communion with Jesus, with our Heavenly Father through Jesus and the Spirit, if I could put it that way. It's with the triune God, with the Godhead, that, that joy is about communion with Him first and foremost that can only happen through justification. So once we experience justi justification, then we have this platform, if you will. There's a fruit that's actually produced in us because of the justification of Christ at work in us, okay? And so, this is where 
it, it becomes very interesting. To me, if we're looking at what justification produces in, in joy and suffering, it's this fruitfulness, okay? So the first thing we get, look at verse 4. Um, actually, uh, let me go back and make sure I get this right. Um, it's actually in verse 1. Because of this, we have peace with God. So the first fruit of justification is peace with God. If you're not, if you're not a, a follower of Christ, if you haven't trusted Him for your salvation, you cannot have peace with God. You're, you're longing, you're striving for that at some level all of the time. But the only way that peace comes is through Christ. The second fruit is we have access to, to grace. Look at verse 2. Through Him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace. You cannot understand the grace of God and freedom that comes from grace until you've been justified by faith. If you don't stand right with Christ, grace is really not yours. Now, you might say, I've tasted of grace. Yes, you have. There's, I think there's these things, this thing called common grace where you get around a church and you get loved on by the church. That's common grace extended to you by God that you're, you're not uh, just snuffed out because of sin. All of us experience grace not being snuffed out and God being done with us because of our first sin. That's grace, that He's allowing us opportunity to live our lives and enjoy the creation and all these things that are around us. That's grace. But the truest grace we experience is through Jesus Christ and the transformation when our sin is confronted and we begin to overcome that sin, not by our own strength, but because of the work of the Spirit and who we are in Christ. That's the real grace that we're afforded as believers. And it brings transformation that based on this, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, because of the work of Christ in us, we have, are able to do good works which He prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Apart from that grace of God, we can't do those good works. We're doing it out of pride and selfishness. That's not godly. Third fruit is that we can rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. You see that in the text? Look at the end of verse uh, 2. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. When, when we experience this, it's, it's what Michael so eloquently conveyed about Keith. Keith being a believer, and they've walked through these things in Romans, he's given testimony that his hope is in the glory of God. He's experiencing that now. Because to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. That's hope. That's hope fulfilled. It's not just the distant promise. It's the promise is reality now for him. Praise God. So yes, though we grieve here, we rejoice for Keith. That's amazing because he is understanding the glory of God like none of us understand. Praise the Lord. So what happens then? And this is where it gets to, to interesting to me in all of this stuff with suffering. It says now that we rejoice in that, verse 3, more than all those other things, and I think why more than is because in this life, this is what we have to deal with. More than all those things, we get to rejoice in our sufferings. As believers, we are called to rejoice in suffering. Parents, I started this with, with you for a minute. Let me remind you, your greatest goal is not to make your child's life easy. Now, I'm not saying you make them suffer, okay, needlessly, but they're going to suffer. Amen? It's unavoidable. Teenagers, let me tell you something. You will suffer. You will struggle with something in your life. Your parents are going to want to fix that. Don't lean on your parents to fix everything. 
Don't lean on them to make everything easy and right for you. Some of the best lessons you will learn are when you struggle and suffer. Endure, learn to persevere, learn to work hard, learn to rejoice in your suffering because God is giving you the opportunity to mature. And it's a good thing. And when your parents don't bail you out and let you suffer some natural consequences for things, thank your parents for allowing you to do that and not stepping in and cutting God's process short in your life. They're going to want to. Believe me, I'm parenting three, okay? They're going to want to step in, but there's moments in their wisdom and godliness, they need to back up and let you fall. The only way you learn to, to walk is to fall, to get back up. To ride a bike is to fall and get back up. To walk with the Lord is to fall, to fail, to sin, to repent and get back up. You need your parents to do that. Parents, allow your children to suffer because God is at work in the midst of that. So rejoice in suffering. Because what does it do? See, this is the cool thing. Paul doesn't just end it here. He says this. There's actually four benefits to suffering. Okay? Oh, Matt, yay, the marvels of biblical joy. We get to suffer. (laughs) Yes, but the truth is we do because here's what it does. And we're going to pick up on this from verse 3, knowing that suffering does what? Produces endurance. If you want to succeed in life, you've got to endure. Right, Rob, still? In the midst of a doctoral program, right there with you. It is about endurance. It's about not quitting. It's about pursuing it wholeheartedly with strength and effort. Sherilyn, I know that. You, you did it in your program. You've got to continue. If you want success, you will endure. And that I'm not talking just worldly stuff. I'm talking about success with the Lord, too. It's an endurance to, to struggle so that you know God more intimately. We get that life, or certainly from the life of Job, don't we? That, that he struggled through all these things ultimately to know God's favor in his relationship. Because he was convinced and confirmed in the relationship before God ever returned any blessing to him. Job wasn't anticipating that. That that was just literally God's grace in his life. The greatest aspect of their relationship was that Job aligned himself and stopped criticizing the Lord and critiquing him, and he he communed with God rightly. So this first one is what, what joy and suffering produces is endurance. The second one Oh, and let me, let me add this because I think this is important. Endurance, rejoicing rightly through suffering and, and enduring, it, it also answers these things. It prevents us or overcomes bitterness. Does, does that make sense? Too many times we get bitter in suffering. When we know the Lord's at work, we overcome bitterness. We overcome resentment. And then we overcome the tendency to be discontent or grumble and complain. I'm guilty of those things. Man, oh man, that's convicting. Now, rejoicing and suffering also does this. Look look back at the text. It produces endurance, and in verse 4, and endurance produces character. That's maturity, character. It's, it's authentic. How many of you watch Pawn Stars? 
I love Pawn Stars, okay? Uh, the, uh, the, some of my favorite episodes are the ones where they bring in um, something that's been signed by somebody, a famous figure, and they bring in the expert to do signature analysis and all, stu- all that kind of stuff, or the, the coin and uh, verify its authenticity. When we think about character, it's authentic. It, it's verified by the Lord's faithfulness to us. It has His stamp of approval so that we know it's valuable. See, apart from God's character being shaped in me, I can mock it up, but eventually it's going to show through that it's hypocritical and fake. But when the Lord is in charge and He's verifying it, He's going to continue to put a stamp of approval on me. Even if it, after age and weather or whatever happens to the original document, the Lord comes along. The suffering, the struggles, they mar me up. The Lord still comes back and says, it's authentic. By the way, that's amen, so be it. That's, that's kind of that stamp of approval in my mind. So, suffering produces character. That's authentic. Suffering also produces hope. Look, at, look back at verse 4. And character produces hope. So, the root of this is endurance uh, or hope that produces uh, character. And character produces, I'm getting that wrong. Let me, let me go back. Rejoicing in suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character. And character produces hope. So what is hope? That we will not be ashamed. That we will not be ashamed. We are no longer defined by the shame of sin. Boy, that is good news. What, what, what do I have to hope for in this life? That sin does not define me. Man, oh man, that is good. Because if I just thought about my sin, I would have to wallow in that all the time. But because I'm justified in, by, by grace through faith in Christ... I'm no longer ashamed. Now, now, I still have moments of shame, but I don't have to bear that as the defining factor of my life because there's hope, because Christ's character is being shaped and formed in me and me to Him. <laughs> That's good stuff. And lastly, look at verse uh, 5. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. The last thing rejoicing through suffering does, is it lets us know God's love. All of us need to understand that. And that goes back to all the the first thoughts that I shared about corrective discipline, especially informative discipline. Why suffering? Because God disciplines and corrects and reproves those He loves. And so when, when we encounter suffering, what I want us to remember is that it ought to allow us, it ought to direct us to rejoice. It sounds so counterintuitive because that's not the way the world thinks. But we as believers are redefined by what Scriptures teach us about how God acts on our behalf and how we ought to respond to these truths. Because when we recognize these things, we know that God loves us and that He is working all these things together for the good of those who are called according to His purpose. Man, oh man, it's simple, but how hard is it to flesh out? Because I think the world rings too loudly in our ears and not the truth of God's Word, and it derails us. And that's why I would encourage you to look at the marvel of biblical joy and what it produces in us and us focus in on that carefully as we walk out our faith. So let's, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, this morning, as I've been praying about how to do this response time, it's real simple.
Lord, I don't know where everyone in in this room is. I can't even begin to, to address that. But Lord, you and your omniscience, your ability to know all things, you know every one of our struggles. Lord, you know right where we are in this moment of time. You know we're going to be in two years from now if you tarry. Lord, the fact is, we're going to have struggles. We're going to have trials. We're going to suffer. But Lord, in the midst of those things, I pray that we would keep our eyes focused on you. So Lord, the response is this. Wherever we are today, we need to take a minute and reflect. Is it corrective? Is it formative? Is it some kind of discipline that you're doing in us just to to help us be shaped to be like Christ in some way so that we would taste more certainly your goodness in our lives? So, Lord, I I just want to be quiet for about 10 seconds and let everyone identify if there's some kind of struggle going on, respond and, and consider how you might be working in their lives specifically. Heavenly Father, we, we may not have heard the answer in such a short time to why we're struggling or where we are and what we need to do. But Lord, I know that your spirit is still good. He, he doesn't uh, exist in a confined space of this building or a room that we're in. He indwells us as, as your children. And so, Lord, I, I pray that as we move from this place today that, that you would continue to make yourself known to us, reveal your will to us. Help us understand what you're doing in our lives that we might respond rightly to you and rejoice in all that you're doing so that you are glorified. Because that's the greatest reason that that we, I think that suffering exists is that we would ultimately endure that so that we can rest assured in the hope of who we are in Christ and glorify you because of your perfect plan of salvation. So, Father, we confess this morning that we do love you. We recognize your goodness. We thank you for the biblical answers to guide us and direct us so that our fellowship with you is sweet. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, again, I want to thank you for being here at the Grove Church with us. I want to encourage you as you leave this week uh, to continue to pray for Vicki Vickery and her family uh, Keith's family in his loss or his home going, our loss, um, and uh, to, to remember one specific thing, we're going to have a members meeting right after this. So we're going to give you about a 10-minute break to get kids back in here, and uh, I think actually they're going to do lunch and a couple other things. Gina, do you have any instructions? You know Shay. Shay's back there. What do we need to do with kids, Shay? Okay, so... Do do parents need to pick them up and help that transition? Okay. So if you have a child and you're not staying, obviously go back and get them. Um, And then we're going to try to start at about 11.37 or 38, somewhere in there, try to turn around pretty quick. So if you're a member of the church, we certainly want you to stay. If you're not a member, you're welcome to stay and just hear what the Lord's doing in our church life. Uh, And other than that, have a great Sunday afternoon. Go and connect in communities and change lives by sharing the love and good news of Jesus Christ with others.